Well, we are now in our third week of our series on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, you know, most people are pretty familiar with them, but the Ten Commandments are the law of God that were given to God's people. Um, They are very old laws, about 3,600 years old. They were written for Israel, but we are seeking ourselves today by the power of God, by the help of God to understand what do they mean to us? How do we live them out? And the method that we're taking for this is kind of a method that's just a general good way of looking at Scripture. And you say, okay, what was the message that God was giving to the people all these years ago? What was, what was it that they were dealing with back then? And then how do we understand this? What message does God have for us? How do we live this out today? Because although we are uh, Gentiles, I'm guessing most of us in the room are, are Gentiles, and our circumstances are different, Jesus told us, he said, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we saw him teaching about that and speaking about that in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So our call is to ask God, what do these Ten Commandments look like in our lives, and then how do we go about faithfully um, living these out? Well, last week we looked at the first commandment. We find it in Exodus chapter 20, and it starts in verse 1 through 3. It says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, God knew that the people of Israel back then and then throughout history and then us today, um, we would be tempted to fall and sometimes dive headfirst into the beliefs and the habits of the cultures that surround us, that we would start to follow and start to worship other gods. Now, back then, it was gods like Amun-Ra and Baal. Today, it's gods like success and fame. Well, our passage carries on for today. Our second commandment carries on from there. Now, I had a hard time as I was working on this sermon and talking to people about it, saying the second commandment and not the second amendment. Um, so hopefully I won't, I won't fall into that because that's been a bit of a topic lately. So the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, it's one through six, but we'll read four through six. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, be- earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we are working through these 10 commandments, a lot of the commandments are, are fairly short and they are, are kind of direct. You shall have no other gods. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, so on and so forth. But the second commandment has a bit more that we need to wade through. There's some other, other thoughts, other, other ideas within that. And as I was reading it, there's a couple of concepts within it with which I guess I, I struggled a little bit to understand what was God saying and, and how, is this, how is this played out. Um, the first that jumps out is in verse 5 to 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the fourth third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So God punishes children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and if my math is right, great-great-grandchildren for the sin of the parents. 
Now, I read that and I go, I, I kind of struggle with that. I go, does this really sound like the God that I know? I'm not, I, I don't know how comfortable I, I feel with that. Is that something that God would really do? Maybe it means something else. Well, when we come to a passage like that, when we come to a passage that is difficult, that is confusing, that makes us uncomfortable, that makes us kind of question things, there are a number of things that we can do, and we need to dig a little bit deeper into the passage and say, what, what is God possibly saying here? So that's what I wanted to do a little bit with this passage. So we see within that maybe three kind of main directions that this passage could be when it's saying that God will punish the children and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the first is that maybe this is describing just the general reality of the consequence of sin, right? Simply put, our sin, the sin of the parents, the sin of anyone, impacts other people, and it especially impacts the people who are around them, either directly or indirectly. Think of things like drug abuse, violence, patterns of crime, and you see families who fall into this. These habits and this brokenness impact the people who we love. They impact the people around us in many ways. And these sins often even get passed along from parent to child. Option number two is maybe this is speaking of the theme of generational sin that we see throughout Scripture. We see generation after generation fall into worshiping false gods and idols. Remember last week we talked about the book of Judges, right? The book of Judges was when, when the people of Israel, they, were, um, they didn't have a king and, and they were ruled, they were governed by these judges. Well, the people would fall into worshiping idols and worshiping false gods and then God would say, okay, well, we're gonna let you kind of do your thing and then people would come in and take them over and then the people would cry out and they'd say, God, we need you to deliver us and then they would, they would worship God, and, and then, but then they would fall right back into it. So there's this over and over again, this pattern of, of people turning their back on God and then coming back to him. Well, the third option is maybe this idea is just a strong condemnation showing the seriousness of the command and the seriousness of the sin. See, God knows the devastation that comes with the worship of other gods. He knows the devastation that comes with idolatry. Perhaps the clearest description of this comes in the book of Romans. So we're going from the Old Testament, moving up to New Testament. And Paul is writing this letter, which kind of describes its, the basics of the Christian faith. And, and it talks about devastation of sin, and then eventually God's grace. Actually, fairly quickly talks about God's grace. But first it goes into the damage of sin, and there's a spiral that just goes down further and further and further with sin. But listen to how it begins. Romans chapter 1, verse 22 to 24. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And things just get worse from there. The spiral continues down and down. But that first step, that first step toward just death and destruction and devastation of sin is idolatry. See, the nature of God is that God absolutely deserves our full 100% devotion, our worship, everything that we have to be given to him. And our habit of turning to idols and false gods, after he has given us grace, after, you know, because remember, he gave this to the people of Israel after he had delivered them from Egypt, from slavery there. 
And then for us, when we turn to false gods, when we turn to worshiping other things, success, fame, or even other gods, literal gods, it is after Jesus has already died on the cross, after Jesus has already given us life. So God deserves all of our, all of our, all of our praise, all of our worship. But in addition to that, a big part of why God gives us a second commandment is that he is a loving and a wise father. He sees the path of destruction. He sees the path of devastation that idolatry leads us down. Again, the Ten Commandments teach us how to obey and glorify God, but they also help us to live as the people he created us to be. We can look at the Ten Commandments and see this big long list of all the things we need to avoid doing, but it is really a roadmap for living a life that glorifies him. It's a roadmap of reflecting his image and really enjoying the fullness of life in him. Well, the second difficult part in the passage isn't isn't quite as as deep as that one, but it's in verse four. He says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. So it says, make no images of anything at all, right? So I'm going to, Okay, so I'm thinking like the, you know, a, a beautiful picture or it's something that your kid draws and puts on, on the refrigerator. Is that, is that wrong? No statues, no paintings, no artwork, no images of anything ever. Now, as you can tell, I like using images in worship. I like the, the beauty that they can bring. You know, we, we used before there was an image. Um, John, if you have the image up there for, uh, it was a creation of Adam, Right? And yes, I, I censored it just a little bit for everyone. Um, but I love using images and art in worship. One, because I, I really appreciate a great picture or a piece of art. Um, but also, for some of us, some of us are visual learners, and it helps to have some kind of an image there to, to convey the message. So for me, a world that has no images in life in general or in worship um, is, is a tough one for me. Well, thankfully, there is a clarification beginning um, in verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So specifically what we're talking about is not just that all images are wrong, that all pictures are wrong, but images that are intended for worship, intended to be worshipped. In the King James Version, we get the phrase graven images, and we're talking about idols. Now, if you remember the first commandment was that you shall have no other gods no matter what form they take, no matter what they may look like. So most likely what we're talking about here in the second commandment is not just a further explanation of the first commandment. Now, if you were raised in a Roman Catholic and possibly Greek Orthodox, I'm not sure, but in a Roman Catholic background, the first commandment is have no other gods and, and, and make no idols, and then it carries on from there. And then they split the um, coveting. You don't covet your neighbor's wife is nine, and then you don't covet your neighbor's stuff is, is, is commandment ten. But most likely what this is talking about is not only don't have idols of foreign gods, but don't have idols of Yahweh. Don't have idols of God. Do not bow down to them. See, if you remember, God's people had lived in Egypt. They had lived among people who worshipped many gods. And then they moved on to Canaan. And the worship in Egypt, do we have a slide for, for Egypt? 
So the, in, so the worship in Egypt, they, they would worship these gods, and then when they came to Canaan, they were going to worship the other gods, but not only did they worship these, these foreign gods, but they had idols of these gods as well. So that's just a part of worship, right? So if you're surrounded by people, and this is what worship looks like, then you just kind of fall into doing that. Even if you're saying, we're not going to worship Amun-Ra, we're not going to worship Baal, we're not going to worship Asherah, all this kind of stuff, we're going to worship God, but hey, you know, they worship God with idols, and they seem to be good people, so it would be very easy and very logical to worship Yahweh with an idol. You can look at it and say, well, idols can be helpful. These images can be helpful because, well, it gives you a bit of an image, something to look at. You can touch it. You can wrap your mind around it. You can put your hands upon it. God may be transcendent. God may be spirit. But at least we can look at an idol. But the truth is an idol will always fail. An idol will always come up short. It can never adequately adequately represent the infinite glory of God. If you think about it logically, you're going, I'm trying to make this thing that will represent almighty, infinite, amazing God. So of course, it is going to fall short, but that is not the only problem. Soon it will stop being a way that we connect with God and instead can become our God. So now as Christians, we say, okay, what do we do with this? How, how do we deal with this, this idea of idols? And can we have images? Obviously, we don't want to worship idols. But then some are saying, okay, well, it says in here, don't have any images at all. Don't make any images at all. Don't worship them, but don't even make them. So even among Christians who believe that Scripture is authoritative and look and say that the Ten Commandments are absolutely authoritative, there's disagreement about what we should have. Are we allowed to have any kind of images at all? Some of our brothers and sisters use icons. You know, these, I forgot to make a picture of one of those. But, but, uh, but, but an icon is kind of an, an image of Jesus. It's this artistic thing. Roman Catholics will use them. Greek Orthodox will use them and such. And the intention is that you will not worship them, but that they would help people to worship. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, we have some who believe that any image of Jesus any image of the Father, any image of the Holy Spirit is a direct violation of the second commandment, whether you worship it or not. You can have no pictures of Jesus, no, no dove, anything like that, no image of God as our Father. Well, now for me, I would be in trouble if that, if that is the case. So I went into my office and I spent literally about 75 seconds looking around at the things in my office. And I came across a bottle. Now, this is kind of a silly thing, but it's living water. So you have Jesus, you know, an image of Jesus helping Peter up out of the water. And then I look at a biblical commentary. So people who take the word of God very seriously and try and apply the word of God, and on the front of it is an image of Jesus. Well, then one of my favorite books is They Like Jesus But Not the Church, and it's covered with all these pictures of Jesus as well. And then finally... I found many other things, but I have this image of Jesus, and he is washing the disciples' feet. So I have to say, am I sinning? Am I, am I doing something wrong here? Now, the truth is, I've never worshipped any of these things. I've never bowed down, and I've never paid homage or anything like that. I've never prayed to them or through them. But I have to start asking the question, am I taking seriously the second commandment of God? Another thing that came up was 
one of my old favorite running routes um, would take me past a Greek Orthodox church that was being built. And outside of this Greek Orthodox church, beautiful building, um, they had a cross that was out kind of in the middle of a field. So I would run past at night, and, and I would stop off at this cross, and I would pray. And I would put my hand on the cross, and I would pray. I'd spend probably three or four minutes praying, and it was, and it was a great time of prayer for me. I didn't worship the cross. I'm not saying that, well, we need to take this cross out of the room, and if we have any images of Jesus down the hallway or, or in here at all, that we need to get rid of them. But as someone who believes in the authority of Scripture, as someone who believes that God calls us to obey the Ten Commandments, well, I need to ask, even if I don't think that all images of Jesus are necessarily idolatry, and even if I'm not worshiping as I'm standing at the cross, and I'll I mean, I don't know if anybody else has, but I mean, I've, I've come here during worship other times and just prayed at the cross. So even if I'm not praying to the cross, even if I'm not making it an idol, is there somewhere where I may cross a line? And I need to be cautious about that. At what point am I making worship not about Jesus, but about myself and what is going to make me feel better and feel like I am worshiping? Now, a big part of why I would say I don't believe that all images of God and that all images used in worship, not to worship, but all images used in worship um, is wrong and that every instance of that is idolatry um, is actually looking at the, the example of Jesus and what Jesus did. So Jesus actually used images a lot when he was teaching, when he was teaching people about himself, when he was teaching people about the kingdom of God. If you remember, a primary way that Jesus taught was through the use of parables. Jesus talked about God as father. Remember in the, the story of the prodigal son, you have the son who is left, and then God is the father who is welcoming the son back. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, the bread of life, the true vine. Now, these were all words. He did not make a physical image. But they did still paint in the picture of the mind an image of God for the listeners. Even maybe a step further than that is that on this table over here, we share once a month in communion, right? And communion is a physical representation. This is my body. This is my blood, which is given for you. So we see it, we touch it, we taste it, we experience this thing. And God not only told us, yeah, it's okay to do this, he said, no, I need you to do this. This is something that we will do. It is a part of worship. Look at the Old Testament. God used Old Testament, God used images for worship in the Old Testament. So God gave the people of Israel, you know, he spoke from, from Mount Sinai and he gave them verbally so they could all hear the Ten Commandments. And then he invited Moses to come back up the mountain, and he gave him even more details, and Moses is supposed to be keeping track of all of this. And part of that is, here's what worship should look like. And physically, there's a few things that I want you to build, that I want you to make for worship. Now, the first one is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this box which God told him to make. I think it was about four feet long or so and, you know, covered in gold and this beautiful thing. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the, the big main thing in there was the covenant, was, was the Ten Commandments. 
So God said, I want you to make, I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments. I want you to put them into this box. And what is on top of that box? It looks like birds, but what is that? It's angels, right? So God has given them, he has said, I want you to make these cherubim, these angels. What are they? They are heavenly beings. And I want you to put them on top of the box you're going to put the Ten Commandments into. And then later on, he says, in in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was before they had the temple. God gave them the tabernacle, which was kind of this tent that they would carry around with them. And it it was the place where the, the Ark of the Covenant would be. It was a place, kind of the dwelling place of God. And if you look off to the right there, you see these curtains that God told them to make. And again, you have the cherubim, which are there. So to me, I think this is a bit more of a complicated thing than just absolutely there can never be any kind of images that could ever be helpful in worship. It is perfectly sinful. Or to say, hey, make whatever you want. It's all good. No, God is calling us to be faithful. God is calling us to not worship these things. God created beauty in this world. He uses our minds. He uses our hearts. He even uses our senses to help us to know him and to worship him. But he also knows our addiction to sin our addiction, our propensity to take the good things of God, that God has given us these beautiful things. God, I mean, the people could even fall into worshiping the Ten Commandments. The people could fall into worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. People can even take to worshiping the Bible. We can take the good things of God and use them in terrible ways, which is idolatry. So he gave us the Ten Commandments so that we might reflect and worship him faithfully. Now, if you look at the life of Jesus, you look throughout the life of Jesus, he was accused many, many times of breaking God's law, encouraging other people to do it, including the Ten Commandments. But in the Sermon on the Mount, that was when Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And you see his way of fulfilling the law was explaining it further and saying, this is what it really means. This is how it is really lived out. He took the basic commandments and invited people to dive deeper, to go beyond that just external obedience and to get to the heart of God. So following this application where Jesus was saying, I'm going to take these Ten Commandments, I'm going to fulfill them, I think there's something even deeper going on in the, ten, in the second commandment than just a physical, you know, don't bow down to the cross, don't bow down to some idol of God. Romans one twenty five says they exchanged, so this is again that same passage that we looked at before with Romans when they were going further and further down into sin. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Idolatry happens when we worship and serve a lie. A fake God rather than the true God. A God that is appealing, a God that I can wrap my mind around, but that is not the true God. Now, if you remember about 15, 20 minutes ago, at the beginning of the sermon, talked about the, the struggle that I had with when it said, um, when God said, you know, I will punish the children for the sins of the parent. And I said something to the effect of God punishing kids for sins of parents doesn't sit right. It doesn't sound like the God that I know. Now, in general, when we come across a passage that is confusing or it involves God, involves God doing something that seems out of character to me, there's a few things that we need to do. First is you need to read it again. 
need to look at other translations, look at other passages and say, was there another passage, another time when it talks about such a thing? need to pray about it. Say, God, what are you saying here? What is going on? I'm, I'm struggling with this. What, what might you actually be saying? Read what, those, read what scholars have written about it. And then ask and say, well, does my understanding of this passage, does that line up with the rest of Scripture? Maybe I'm reading the passage wrong. Or maybe my understanding of God, my understanding of how he should act, is false. Statements like, the God I know would never, can actually become a dangerous form of idolatry. See, sometimes the God that I know is based on Scripture, based on His revealed Word, how He has revealed His nature to us. But too often it's based on a Jesus that I've created in my own mind. It's that point that I've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, an idol is a false and incomplete image of God, one that I can relate to, one that looks like God, but is a lie. Genesis 127 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. See, idolatry happens when instead of living as the image of God, I create God in my own image instead of living as the created image of God. Because God's word says that I am created as the image of God. But idolatry happens when I create God in my image. Now, over the centuries, this has happened quite literally. Um, There's a picture that I want to show here. It's kind of what a number of sciencey smart folks have said, this, this could be similar to what Jesus looked like. We don't know. There's not actual pictures of Jesus. But looking uh, biologically, historically, what do people look like in that region with the environment, all that kind of stuff, this may be a fair representation of what Jesus could have looked like. But artists over the years instead made Jesus look like the one here on the right. Right? Blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, looks... I don't know, Swedish or something maybe? I'm not really sure. But we create God in our own image. And actually, uh, my sister used to work for, actually it was a Christian publisher I used to work for as well, and she went to a trade show, and somebody had made this like action figure Jesus. All right, let's see if it's going to work. Right, so it's got, you know, Jesus sharing scripture and all that, but... Adam, what color is eyes? Blue. Blue eyes, okay. This is going to get a little awkward, but, but take a look at his chest. That guy's ripped, right? <laughs> so you got like shredded Jesus, and this is the Jesus. This was not made as a joke, right? This was made, he's quoting scripture, all this kind of stuff. It would make Jesus like jacked with blue eyes and super, super white, all right? So we create God in our own image. But that to me is, is problematic. I think that it pushes some people away to it's a Jesus they can't really relate to. But that's not really the big problem here. The deep problem is not making Jesus look a certain way physically, but making Jesus into something that he is not. Creating a Jesus that I'm comfortable with. A Jesus who agrees with me. A God who brings wrath against people that I don't like. A God who never challenges me or my view of the world. See, worshiping God, reading scripture, should make me uncomfortable. 
if I read scripture and there's nothing where I go, yeah, okay. if, If there's nothing when I read it and I go, oh man, that's a challenge. That's hard for me. It's challenging me personally. It's challenging my understanding of God. I'm probably not being honest with myself. Or I'm probably just not really reading my whole Bible. In John chapter 4, Jesus was having a conversation about worship that honors God. John 4, 22 to 24 says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Infinite, almighty, amazing God, the creator of the universe, has chosen to give us life, has chosen to give you life and to give me life. See, that alone is reason to celebrate. That alone is reason to offer him our worship and our obedience. Not only that, but he has chosen to reveal his nature to us in Scripture. He has chosen to reveal his love to us in the Bible. If we are going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we cannot just worship the God that we're comfortable with. We must worship the God of the Bible. He's the God who showed us his amazing grace and his infinite love on the cross. He's the God of justice, the God of love. He's the God of the Ten Commandments, and he's the God of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the God that we worship. That's the God that we worship in spirit and in truth, the God that we worship with reverence and joy is not just this God that I've made up, this God I'm comfortable with, this God who sure makes me feel happy, but the God that we find in Scripture, the fullness of who he is. That is who we worship with reverence and with joy and with obedience. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, we don't have to guess who you are. We don't have to try and figure out who you are and make up gods in our own mind. We don't have to come up with idols and images that that we think fit. But Lord, we can open your word and you have revealed your nature to us. Lord, there are parts of who you are that are difficult for us to understand. There are parts of who you are and what you do that are difficult for us to accept. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, help us to trust you more than we just trust what we think, how we think things should be. But help us to trust your wisdom and to worship you for who you are. Lord, we offer you our praise. We offer you our lives. We thank you for your amazing grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.